Welcome to this session with Grace Point Church. We are glad, I'm glad you're here today with us and uh, thank you for uh, tuning in. We want to especially welcome our church family and especially our guests who may be with us today who have joined us uh, on these uh, sessions out of the book of Philippians. We are just really beginning our study of the letter to the church at Philippi, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And uh, we are glad you're with us and we hope that uh, you have a copy of God's word with you, whether it's in digital form or in paper form. Uh, we always encourage people to bring their Bible, their brains and a pen and a pad of paper just to, in case you're the type of person who likes to take notes. And so as we continue on with our study here today, you know, the Apostle Paul in this little letter to the church at Philippi, he's greeting them as a person who's in prison in Rome, some 800 miles to the west of Philippi, the city of Philippi. And if you take your copy of God's word, let me read the first two verses as we begin. Uh, Paul's letter to the church at uh, Philippi, the, ch the letter of Philippians, of chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in this letter, the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, verse 5, uh, tells us, encourages us that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Isn't that an incredible statement when we think of the perfect Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that our attitude should be the same as Christ? The mind of Christ and the mind of the believer in Jesus Christ should be as one, if you will, is what Paul is saying. And Jesus is the pattern for how we live out the Christian life, and we should be like him. For Jesus, that meant emptying himself in obedience to God the Father, and it means for us as believers in Christ that we center our lives upon Christ. In the science of astronomy, we learned, if you think back to your days in science class, uh, that we learned that for thousands of years before Copernicus, uh, people thought that the moon, the sun, and the stars, and all the planets rotated around the Earth. That was called the Ptolemaic system, the Ptolemaic system. It was a good system, more than we can imagine in our day and age. Uh, it could foretell the hours of the sunrise and sunset. It could chart the alteration of the heavens. But it had a faulty system to begin with. It was wrong. Moreover, because the sun is the center of our solar system and not the earth, as Ptolemy imagined, it was inevitable that the Ptolemy system, the Ptolemaic system, would have its defects. First of all, it was not always accurate, according to those who've studied this, particularly in charting the position of the planets. Under the strain of providing corrections for the movements, for the planet's movements, the system eventually collapsed. Second, it did not allow for progress. Isn't that interesting? It did not allow for progress. New discoveries always went against the theory of the Ptolemaic system. Moreover, it was only under the system of Copernicus and his understanding that Sir Isaac Newton's theories of gravity could be developed. And it was only under that system that in our lifetime, the flight of spaceships and all of that beyond Earth is possible in the understanding of that. 
you know, it's really a perfect illustration of the fact that, and it serves as a metaphor of the fact that uh, we as believers and all people really live in a spiritual solar system. We live in a spiritual solar system that is as fixed as the one that fills our heavens, our natural environment here. The Bible teaches us that uh, there are a couple of options in this spiritual solar system. One is where Jesus Christ is the center of the solar system, our spiritual solar system. And the other is man longs to be the center of his own solar system, spiritual solar system. And many people today, perhaps you imagine that you are the center of your spiritual solar system. We see by our experience that maybe if I run my life and I'm the center of all things, that things might work out okay, it just might. And we see that perhaps we desire a certain job or to buy a home. And if we put our minds to it, we can make it work out. And if the circumstances work out correctly, and if we work hard, we can accomplish many of these things through our own ability. And we can count it as a measure of success, if you will. But just like the Ptolemaic system of our physical solar system, uh, a spiritual solar system that is human-centered has its defects. It has its faults. And in the first place, it's not quite accurate, if you think about it. It predicts a certain measure of success, but it really doesn't account for failure or the inevitable letdown when we do accomplish some goals that we've set out for ourselves. And similarly, the system of natural man does not allow for progress. Why is that? Because human beings are finite. We are limited, and any system that makes us the center of it is limited also. Therefore, it is a faulty system. And that's not the way for Christians, really, for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. For those who see things the way God wants us to see them, uh, you know, the Bible teaches us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. And the Bible also teaches us that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is fully exalted. He is the one who should be the center of our spiritual system, if you will, our spiritual universe. And uh, the Bible tells us that in that realm, there is great joy. And there is infinite progress because it's based on the reality as God defines reality, as God has designed and created reality and the nature of an infinite God, not on our finite human selves. And so the question is, is where do you stand with God? Are you the center of your spiritual solar system or is Jesus Christ? And are you accepting Christ within this system that is designed for us? The Bible tells us that we were created for certain things. We are created for great joy and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the first question, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And of course, those of you who went through a catechism know the answer to that. And it is man's chief end and women, women's, females also, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if you have been with us through our uh, survey last week or last session on the little letter to Philippians, if you've been exposed to it before, you know that one of the great themes of Philippians is the whole concept of joy or gladness and rejoicing. Uh, just a little bit of background on this letter. 
uh, is that it's uh, in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, which we can read about in Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 34, he visited Philippi. And of course, it is the first European city that uh, the gospel, the evangelist, the Apostle Paul and his team went to. And uh, through his ministry, several people believed in Jesus for everlasting life as their savior. And some of these were named Lydia, the, the seller of purple, who he first met on the riverbank there in Philippi. Her family, the Philippian jailer, of course, and his family and many others. And uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, way of doing things was when he went to a new city, he would find a Jewish synagogue and go teach at the synagogue. But evidently, the, the city of Philippi did not have a great Jewish population because there was not a synagogue. It took 10 Jewish males to make up a synagogue, to start a synagogue, and there was not that there. And so the Apostle Paul established this church in Philippi. And this letter to the church at uh, Philippi, to these Philippian believers, is practical in its tone and teaching. Remember I said it uh, has a lot to do about joy. The word joy is used some 16 times in various forms of rejoicing, gladness. Also, the word used, he uses the reference to the mind of the child of God. In other words, our joy really begins in our thinking process, in our minds. Our ma manner of life truly is a reflection of what occupies our mind. And then the theme of the epistle and the theme of this series is living the Christian life. The Apostle Paul has a number of uh, emphasis in this letter, uh, but it's about living the Christian life. The Apostle Paul wrote the book. He, he uses his name right at the beginning of this letter, which was the style of early correspondence where the author of the letter was identified right up front, whereas now when we write a letter, if we write a letter, we sign it at the bottom. Uh, and he, he is the author of this letter. And it's uh, accepted by scholars throughout history, especially in the writing of the early church fathers, that Paul was the author of this letter. The Apostle Paul, remember, this is one of the prison epistles, uh, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, written during the time the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And that would date this letter about 61, 62, perhaps 62, and place it towards the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28. And so we would take that position, I would take that position that it is later towards the end of the Apostle Paul's life here on earth. And uh, the historic occasion was is that uh, the believers in, in Philippi, remember the Apostle Paul had planted this church in about 51, and this is about 10 years later. And the Apostle Paul uh, is imprisoned in Rome, and these, this 10-year-old church of believers heard of his imprisonment, and they sent a man named Epaphroditus, who perhaps may have been the pastor of that local church, to minister to the Apostle Paul. They were willing to send him over and Epaphroditus comforted the Apostle Paul and expressed to him the affection of the saints, the believers over in Philippi. And he brought him a financial contribution or a gift to help 
with his life there in Rome. Because remember, prisoners had to pay their own way. The state did not pay for their food or the place of confinement. And so the Apostle Paul was brought this gift from the church at Philippi. So the book of Philippians also a major part of it is he's writing a big thank you note to the, to the saints, to the church at Philippi for their generous gifts. Uh, Epaphroditus, of course, we know later in the book in chapter two became so ill that he almost died. But after he recovered, he took the letter back to the Christians. You notice Timothy is also named in the first verse of this letter. And Timothy was a co-laborer, a, a part of the team of the Apostle Paul. He was with Paul when the church was planted back in 51. And uh, Timothy is with uh, the Apostle Paul in Rome, even though he's not the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul is. But Paul very graciously includes him as part of this communication. Well, Philippi was a Roman colony. As I said, the, there weren't probably many Jews, if any Jews, uh, Jewish people in Philippi because in 49 AD, uh, Rome persecuted the Jews and scattered them out of the city of Rome and out of many Roman colonies. And so they probably had not returned yet. So it was primarily a, a Greek and Roman city. Uh, in the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC, uh, the Roman soldiers uh, took over and uh, Anthony, if you remember Anthony and Cleopatra, and they settled them later on. Uh, Octavian, some 12 years later, Octavian uh, forced some people, some of the citizens out of Italy and also some of his retired military to settle in Philippi. It was on a main uh, trade route there. And, but the Philippian residents were given special privileges, included what is called the Italic Rite. It's just as if they were in Rome, in the city of Rome, on uh, the Isthmus of Italy. And they were colonists, if you were, and they were treated to land, given land, as well as freedom from taxes from their mother city of Rome. They, full, they, they enjoyed full rights as Roman citizens. And so the Apostle Paul later in this letter talks about conduct yourselves, live as citizens, your citizenship is in heaven. It resonated with the readers and listeners to this letter to them because they understood what citizen, citizenship meant. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this to thank them. He wrote this to encourage them. He wrote this to address some problems in the church. Evidently, there was starting to be a little bit of divisiveness in this church between believers. And he's writing about that problem. Also, there was false teaching that was coming in. And in chapter three, we see that. And it was starting to gain a hearing. So he's warning them, warning them about that. So the Apostle Paul is writing uh, for a very real purpose. And that is to live out the Christian life. Who is the center of your solar system? I'm going to pray right now and then we'll launch into this. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter to the church at Philippi. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, for Epaphroditus, for Timothy, and for those who made up this early church in the first century. And thank you, Lord, that we are blessed by having this letter in our own language here today. You've sustained it, superintended its protection and care and translation for us today. And I pray today that each one of us would learn and what you would have us to learn, that your Holy Spirit would apply this book to our lives. In Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen and amen. You know, in the uh, letter to the church at Philippi, there are just some really precious kinds of verses that 
are beloved by Christians around the world. Think of these in chapter one, verse 21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Boy, that is a good verse to, in times of adversity, difficulty, and looking towards the future. Also, chapter three, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship and share of, sharing of his sufferings and to become like him in his death. In other words, Paul was so identified, Jesus Christ was the center of the spiritual universe. For chapter four, verse 11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. Boy, that is a challenge for us today, isn't it? In the adversity and the difficulties we live in socially, politically, uh, medically, uh, health, you know, our health concerns, everything, uh, to be content in our circumstances. It is a contentment only Christ can provide. Chapter four, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, everything through him. Then chapter four, verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the glorious riches of Christ Jesus. Think about that when you imagine your needs. The book of Philippians is also uh, not e only a book of comfort and encouragement and instruction, but it's noteworthy for its great doctrinal statements, even though the book of Philippians is not uh, is known for its doctrinal content, say, like the book of Romans. And it's not a doctrinal treatise, as is Romans and Galatians, if you will, but is filled nonetheless with great doctrine. <clears throat> Paul always thought about doctrine. He was wrapped up in the truth of who and what God is. Consequently, great expressions of Christian truth fall like ripe fruit from his pen, if you will. At times, this seems incidentally. Thus, the entire argument of Romans is found in one verse in the third chapter of this book, where the Apostle Paul writes of his desire to be found in Christ, where he writes, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith, chapter 3, verse 9. That is a summary of the book of Romans. And it's a sum of his teaching about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Paul writes, And Christ, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we'll, they will be like his glorious body. The promise of the resurrection to new life. And then, moreover, the great doctrinal passage about Christ, probably the greatest doctrinal passage about Jesus Christ in the entire Bible is found in this book in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In that section, as we will see in the future, that tells us that Christ laid aside his pre-incarnate glory to take on the form of a man. You know, God, Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, and he set that aside, set aside his prerogatives there and to become, take on the form of a man. But it is uh, joy that seems to pervade this book, the theme of joy and rejoicing in the midst of adversity. And remember, the Apostle Paul is imprisoned and he writes this words, and we can have a new beginning today when we realize it and ask the question of ourselves, who is the center of our spiritual universe? Who is the center of our lives? Is it me? Is it, uh, is it you? <laughs> Uh, or is it Jesus Christ? Is he the focus of our lives? A joyfulness arises from our position in Christ. 
Remember, this is written to believers in Jesus Christ, as we've seen in those first two verses. But it begins, it says, Paul and Timothy. And notice how he describes himself and Timothy. Bondservants of Christ Jesus. Some of your translations may say bond slaves or simply servants. Uh, but this is really the idea that one is really a slave to Jesus Christ. And of course, our context for slavery is our own country's uh, history with slavery, of enslaving people. And uh, that's partially true here, but it's bigger than that. It's more than that. No one can become a servant of Jesus Christ until he realizes that by nature he is a slave to sin. The Bible teaches that very clearly. And in this time, in this day and age, in, when Paul was writing, there were three ways a person could become a slave. Josephus, the historian of this era, said that, you know, he estimated there were some 60,000 slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. Well, first of all, they could become <clears throat> a slave by conquest. In other words, the Romans would uh, conquer a land and take its people as slaves. And many who took part in the uh, Athenian invasion of Sicily became slaves. And the Greek in that day and the Greeks defeated were defeated at Syracuse. And second, uh, you could be born into slavery if your parents were uh, servants of a household in Roman Empire and you were born of those parents, you would become a slave as well. And thirdly, many poor people sold their children into slavery in order to pay a debt. It was very common, in fact. Uh, so there were different ways of becoming a slave. But the Apostle Paul knew that this would resonate with the people who were reading this letter because they were citizens of Rome. Uh, they were either Greek or Roman themselves, and they had this context socially, and they understood when he said, we are bond servants of Christ Jesus. And so it's striking that against this background, all people are slaves to sin. The Bible teaches us that. But we could, uh, that there is an answer to that. The Bible teaches that human beings are born into sin. David writes in Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And this has nothing to do with supposed sinfulness. Remember, when we think of sin, it's the expression of what is a sin nature. The Bible also teaches that we are slaves by con conquest. Sin rules over this so that we would not do the things that we would want to do. David prays for deliverance from that in Psalm 19. Solomon speaks of being bound to the cords of his sin in Proverbs chapter 5. And we're sinners by debt. The wages of sin is debts, Romans 6, 23. And so there were all these ways, but a person in the ancient Roman Empire could earn his freedom. He could buy it or he could give himself to someone else to pay the price. Uh, but those things are several ways of becoming free from that sin. But in Scripture, there's no way that we can buy our way out of our bondage. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place. He took our sin upon him. And if we believe in him, we will become children of God. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there's now cond no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are purposefully and beautifully kept in God's hand. There's no condemnations. 
And in verse nine or verse second part of verse one, he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. In other words, saints are not perfect people. They are those who are set apart. That word saint means that we are set apart. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God who should show forth the praises of him who has called them out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter wrote that in his first letter, chapter two, verse nine. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has set you apart in this way. Imagine that, a chosen person, a royal priest, a holy nation of people belonging to God. Why? That we would show forth the praises of him. There's a purpose for your life. If Christ is at the center of your life, others will want to know about it because you've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. And grace, and then Paul uh, gives us a greeting in chapter two. He says to the saints at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, he includes those offices in the church. The overseer also a synonymous term is elder or bishop. They are the spiritual uh, leaders, overs oversight of the, the, the local church and deacons who serve. That goes back to Acts chapter six. The they serve the material needs in the church. And then he greets them with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace go together. The Apostle Paul uses the Greek greeting of grace, charis, and the Hebrew greeting of peace, shalom. You know that word. And so what is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited and undeserved. Paul told us in Romans chapter five, verse eight, God demonstrates his own love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We died, for, he died for people who are hideous in God's sight. Our sin separates us from God. And if we're ever to understand the grace of God, we must have the knowledge that God acted graciously towards us, apart from any of our own human effort. That's why salvation is simply the condition upon our belief in Jesus Christ, as it says over a hundred times in the New Testament. So grace is unmerited, undeserved. Grace is superabounding, if you will. It's unmerited. It's also abounding. Romans 5.20 says that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I had a discussion this weekend about the aspect of grace. And every time I talk about grace in my own heart and life, it gets bigger and bigger. Because when you think about it, God is an infinite God. No beginning, no end, all powerful, all knowing, all those things. He is love. And his grace, his unmerited favor to you and I is infinite also. And I believe, and I think I can support it biblically, that throughout eternity future, when we're in the presence of Jesus Christ as believers, we will have more and more grace revealed to us. And it's just gonna get bigger and bigger and more amazing and more amazing. When you think about grace, it is super abounding. It increases all the more. We can think that we're pretty terrible sinners. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet because of God's grace, it superabounds. Plus, grace is eternal. It will go on overflowing throughout our lives and in the, the next life throughout eternity. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. 
All this is for your benefit so that grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving and overflow to the glory of God. What an amazing statement. It was by grace that the worlds, the planets were hung in space and the earth was disposed for human life. It was by grace that the mountains were created and the world was filled with life. It was by grace that we as human beings were created in God's image with the capacity for fellowship with relationship with him. It was by grace that we received the Bible, the revelation of God's will. It was by grace that God chose Israel for a special purpose in all of history. It was by grace that the Lord sent, or God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live a life that revealed the Father and to die for us. It was by grace that leads us to trust or believe in Jesus Christ. Grace sent the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. Grace has preserved the church throughout the centuries since its beginning in Acts chapter 2. Grace will bring forth our final resurrection. Grace will sustain us throughout eternity as we live in unbroken fellowship with God and grow in the knowledge of him. Wonderful things to look forward to. Grace unmerited, grace abounding. It is a knowledge of such grace that inspired Paul to write grace to you, yet grace be unto you, grace be multiplied. R.G. Lee was a preacher from another era, but he wrote that in his definition of grace, which is probably one of my favorites, he said, grace is the unlimited and unmerited favor given to the utterly undeserving. Grace is the unlimited and unmerited favor given to the utterly undeserving. And it's abounding towards us, and the peace of God is the result of that favor. Notice that grace and peace go together. Notice the word order here. And until we uh, experience God's grace, uh, we really don't have God's peace in that. And so the peace is the result of favor. It's the result of reconciliation between us and between God through Jesus Christ's death. Peace obtained on the cross of Jesus Christ. Peace is promised. And remember this word peace is that Hebrew word shalom. And it's not just absence of conflict. We all want a peaceful life, absence of conflict. But it means more than that. It is a rich term, which means complete well-being in our relationship with God and with others. And that's what we desire. And uh, for those, all of those of us who've experienced broken relationships on a human level, we recognize that there is this desire, this desire to have things right and, and well. I've often marveled in studying the New Testament of significant moments in the earthly life of Jesus Christ where the promise of peace occurs. Think about these. The promise of peace uh, to men occurs in the birth of Jesus Christ. You remember the birth narrative in Luke? Uh, the words of the angels in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on, to men on whom his favor rests. So even the announcement of the arrival of the Messiah, there was peace declared. The angels told us that we can experience that shalom peace, that well-being only through Christ. And then just before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. John 14, 27. He gives us peace 
even when he was facing the crucifixion. And finally, peace is the first word Jesus Christ spoke to the disciples after his resurrection. When they assembled in the upper room, he said, peace be with you. John 20, 19. Of course, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that peace. Peace with God. Think of it and imagine that we are not naturally at peace with God. We are enemies of God. I was just relating this last week in my own testimony of when I was in high school, college and a little bit older, basically shaking my fist in God's face as an agnostic and atheist and then back to agnosticism, an enemy of God. And yet God in his grace and his mercy provided me with salvation in Lord Jesus Christ. And we are I was no longer at war with him, but uh, I had peace through the Lord Jesus Christ and the misery and the things that mark my life before that. Jesus Christ is the one who takes care of those things. He gives you peace if you believe in him. Also, not only is peace promised, but peace is ongoing. Later on in Philippians chapter four, we see that Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. Boy, there's a challenge, isn't it? Especially in today's day. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting verse? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding. God's peace is infinite. It is given to us. And it even then, as we look out at our circumstances, at coronavirus, at political things, at social upheaval, uh, the peace we can have transcends understanding, our own human limits. And, but God gives it to us freely. When we grasp the reality of God's grace, we will experience the peace of a joy-filled life. And that is the result. God-given joy arises from our position in Christ. When we analyze our lives, is it a life of joy? And if it's not, why not? Are you needing to believe in Jesus for everlasting life? That is John 3:16. For God so loves you that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Look at the condition or the consequences everlasting life but what is the condition is simply believe in Christ so I'd encourage you read through the gospel of John it is God's love letter to people who need to know Jesus as Savior and so our position in Christ and it begins with our minds it begins with our decision and a confidence in the Lord demonstrated by affection for God and affection for others and expressly praise for others so to put into practice this week, perhaps, as the circumstances, whatever your circumstances are, and each day they change, don't they? Uh, they begin, if they begin to rob you of joy, stop and focus on Jesus Christ. Is he the center of your spiritual universe, of your solar system? And allow your circumstances to drive you closer to him and closer to others who believe in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day of life. Thank you for this time as we begin to study the letter to the Philippian church. And Lord, thank you for your sustaining it and bringing it to us in this day and age. And I pray for each one that we would really experience the joy that is found in Christ. 
And I pray for any who do not know you as their savior, that they could believe in you today for everlasting life and be assured of that salvation and of your power and your grace to carry it through. And thank you for your peace that you bring to us in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank <laughs> you.